The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 41 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week, I'm kicking off a little mini-series here that focuses on local Pittsburgh drummers and artists. I'm going to start with my good friend, Tom Went. Tom is currently on faculty at Duquesne University. He is an adjunct professor of jazz percussion. He teaches drums and also jazz history. He's also very busy gigging. Um, he's playing any given night, he's playing around town. He began playing professionally when he was just 14. He's a graduate of the Pittsburgh High School for the Creative and Performing Arts. His mentor is the great Roger Humphreys, another Pittsburgh legendary drummer here. Um, he also studied with Joe Harris, Kenny Washington. He's, um, gosh, he's played with everybody that's been in this scene here. We've got Dwayne Dolphin, Joe Negri, Sean Jones. Um, the Pittsburgh Jazz Orchestra. I mean, I always go to him when I have questions about you know, who played on what record or um, which record should I check out for specific drummers. So this conversation begins. I had to have him humor me with some gear talk for the show, and then we go deep onto some legendary Pittsburgh drummer talk. So let's get right to it. Tom Went. It's kind of weird to hang here when we live. I could have been at your house jogging in, in 10 minutes, but it's good to see you. I know. I know. It's crazy. It's great to see you, man. Thanks for doing this. So this episode, um, I wanted to focus a lot on you know, moving to Pittsburgh. And, and I always knew it was a cool town for, for music, especially for drums and jazz. But the more I talk to you and the more I kind of snoop around, I'm like, man, there's so much history here. So I definitely want to... You know, tap your brain. Anyone listening who knows me from my previous gig, I used to, um, whenever a question would come up about like who played drums on a classic jazz record, I would text Tom, like, hey, <laughs> can you confirm who's on this record? <laughs> I tried. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question before we dive into too much of all that is, um, how did you get so into jazz music? We're the same age. And it wasn't, for me, it wasn't really part of my culture coming up. I had to discover it a little bit later. So what is your your connection? Well, for me, I was fortunate because uh, my dad liked jazz. Um, and he had, he had a little record collection. It wasn't that big, but he had some really important records in there, which was very, very uh, uh, wonderful for me. Um, and I, I sort of, I, I was interested in the drums, uh, you know, we're of the MTV generation, <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. And I, I remember watching MTV with my sister in the 80s, and everybody likes drums. You know, drums are, are the coolest instrument ever. So I, I was already kind of interested in playing drums. And so when I was in uh, fifth grade, I, I, I asked to play drums, and my parents said, you know, okay, you can join the school band. And at first, that's of course what I did. And at first I took rudimental snare drum lessons uh, from a gentleman, a drummer here in Pittsburgh. He lives in Florida now named Kerry Ehrenfeld. He was my first teacher. And I learned the rudiments and how to read from him. But at first I wasn't into jazz at all. I was I was, you know, just into whatever the pop music of the of the day was. But I would say about a year after I started playing drums, so I would have been about 12 or so, 12 and a half maybe, um, I started, you know, my dad would play jazz in the car, uh, and he would play it in, in the house sometimes, and my ear just kind of started 
to find it interesting. And um, I, before long, I, you know, I knew my dad had these records, so I, I started looking through them. And then, of course, I started playing them, and that's sort of how I got got interested in the music. At, when I first started playing drums, I wasn't into jazz, but about a year or so into playing drums, I. I um, I just sort of gravitated towards it. I heard a little bit at a time. Dave Brubeck's Time Out was sort of the first jazz record that I paid attention to, and I really loved uh, Paul Desmond's sound. I remember looking on the record and seeing, wow, that's an alto saxophone. I had no idea what it was at first because, you know, I was used to hearing, you know, alto saxophones on, on pop records where they have that, that sort of sound. And I, I had never heard an alto saxophone sound like that. And I really love the sound of, um, of Joe Morello's brush playing. I, I remember hearing that and thinking like, man, what is that? I had never heard that sound before. Um, but then I heard Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, and that was the first time I heard Jimmy Cobb and Paul Chambers. That was the first time I'd ever heard a rhythm section like that, and that really piqued my interest. Um, and so from there, I just sort of moved through my dad's collection. And as I said, he wasn't a large record collection, but he had a lot of important records. And so I was exposed you know, to that early on, and that's kind of how I got into the music. Did you play along the record? How did you assimilate the language? Did you study it? Did you transcribe? What was your process? I totally learned how to play from listening and playing along to records. I didn't try to transcribe anything until I, I think I was a, maybe a senior in high school. I've never been a big transcriber, but I learned by ear. So I was learning a lot of solos and, a, and just a lot of things by ear and trying to figure out how the various drummers were were playing and try, realizing very quickly that trying to get the stickings together was really difficult and challenging. So I, I learned just by listening and I would practice with the recordings all the time. That's really how I learned how to play the drum set, really. I didn't take a drum set lesson until I was at the Performing Arts High School. Um, so. Yeah, I, I totally learned from just listening and playing along with uh, so recordings. When you're playing to a record, this is something I, I struggle with my own practice and with students. Like, what do you do? Do you try to cop the comping of the drums that's there? I mean, what are you listening to? Like, it, it can kind of become like a glorified metronome if you're if you're not careful, <laughs> you know? Totally. Yeah. I you know for me, I I I would practice with the recordings and I I would try to would try to get some of what the drummer was doing, but I, I really treated it like I was playing in the band um, where, you know, I, I would, I would even pretend that I was, I was playing, you know, with, with Paul Chambers or with, you know, Wilbur Ware or, you know, Mild Hinton, whoever, you know, whatever bass player I was playing with. So I, I, I approached playing with the, with the records like that. I wasn't trying to play along with the drummer on the record, so to speak. I was sort of pretending that I was the drummer in the band. And I eventually w found a lot of recordings that didn't have drums on them. Uh, and I would practice with those as well. So I, it, it was more like that for me as far as playing, playing along with the recordings. What is your top pick for a drumless record? Oh, man, I don't know if I could narrow it down to one. I can give you a couple, though. All right, let's um, go with a couple. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to get me to narrow that stuff down. Um, one is uh, the uh, Stan Getz meets the Oscar Peterson trio on Verve. 
which is a wonderful recording, uh, which features Oscar Peterson, Herb Ellis on guitar, the great Ray Brown on bass, and Stan Getz. Uh, the Ahmad Jamal Trio Records on Epic, before he signed with Argo, which uh, featured uh, Israel Crosby on bass and uh, Pittsburgher Ray Crawford on, on guitar. Those are, those are two that, that are great. There's actually a lot of uh, drumless records uh, that are, are more recent in the last, you know, maybe 25 or, or so years that are great. Um, uh, as well, there's, uh, if, if there are drummers out there who are looking for stuff, check out uh, uh, Benny Green's uh, These Are Soulful Days on Blue Note, which features uh, Christian McBride and uh, Russell Malone. That's a, that's a good one uh, that has, has a lot of great tunes and, and great playing. Uh, there's there's a bunch of other ones too. Uh, the Canadian bassist Dave Young did a whole series of duo recordings with tons of great pianists. Those are all very good to to, to play along with as well. And the, and there's others too, but those are just a few. Dang, are all those available? Can I find those? They are available. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nice. I mean, I was today. I was just just struggled trying to play along with um, uh, what is it? The West Montgomery record with um. Arigen, his version of Arigen on it. Oh yeah, is that a, a incredible jazz guitar? Yes, yes. Yeah, and it's so fast. So it's like that weird <laughs> tempo where it's so fast, but you can't just bounce. You know, <laughs> like, yep. what? Yes. What's your approach to up tempo? Do you let the stick bounce? Do you try to use your fingers for it? It's a combination of 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 both. Um, I I let the initial stroke sort of get me most of the way there and then you use those back fingers to articulate it when it comes to up-tempo playing you know i i was really influenced by uh drummers like like lewis hayes um you know who has one of the greatest cymbal beats ever and he he's very he articulates the you know each each note very well so my my ear you know i i i used to play along to the records that he made with cannonball uh, like uh, Nippon Soul, where they play "Easy to Love" and it's real fast. That's that's one of the great Lewis Hayes up-tempo recordings. So that my ear sort of gravitates to that kind of sound. So I usually I let that first initial note sort of get me in there, and then I use those back fingers to articulate the the rest of the notes. Did you ever practice like very deliberate up-tempo comping to get the independence? Like that's where sure. I'm falling apart. Is I can't I can't get the independence rolling that fast. Yeah, I, I, I certainly do. I mean, you know, especially these days, you know, the way the scene is, it's it's very hard to be on gigs where you're playing those tempos all the time. And to really, I think, get really, really good at that, that's what you have to do. You have to be in performance situations where you're really doing that. Practicing is great, you gotta do that, but it's there's no substitute for doing it live with a group. So yeah, I definitely practice that stuff. And when it comes to comping for really up-tempo stuff, I, I obviously, you play a lot simpler because you just don't have time to play more notes. Um, the other thing that I try to focus on as far as comping in general is to have a melodic approach to it. Um, meaning I'm not just sort of jabbing at the rhythm. I'm, I'm trying to think like a pianist or a good guitarist would, and I try to play phrases and not just rhythm, quote-unquote. Um, I found that, that, first of all, for me, that's more fun and challenging, but I found that it, it, it serves the music a little bit better if you approach it that way, in, in my humble opinion. Mm. How does the bass drum fall into your approach to comping? 
Uh, I, I I use it when I when I hear it. You know, I try to. I definitely use it. I I think there. If there's one thing I've learned from from listening and playing in my life is that just with the snare drum and bass drum alone, there are just an infinite amount of possibilities that you can that you can use. Um, and there again, because if if you if you use the bass drum, you have the snare drum and the bass drum, the tom toms too, uh, perhaps. But you have much more of a of a chance to be melodic when you're comping because you have those two voices more than that if you use the tom-toms but you know with two voices you can really there's a lot of different melodic simple melodic ideas you can play between the snare drum and the bass drum and then of course you can get the different colors out of each of those drums too uh so there's just with those two there's just so much possibility and i i find that when i sit down and practice that it's it's amazing to me just how much you can get out of just using those two drums when when you're comping. And how much of the time are you feathering the bass drum if it's not comping? Most of the time. Sometimes, for artistic reasons, I, I won't do it. But most of the time, I am. Um, I find that it helps me lock in with the other musicians, and plus, it it it's sort of it's the bottom of our sound. Uh, I think if you if you don't do it most of the time, I think there's a lot that's that can be missing from your overall sound. Um, you know that that bottom is part of it. It's not just the cymbal and the and the, the rest of the drums. You know. Do you? Um, the cliche is it should be felt, not heard. Uh, but I have a hard time like comprehending what that actually means. Like how how quiet should it be? <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a that's a good question. I the the thing I try to visualize uh, is, um, and I tell this to students as well. You know, um, I try to think of you know if if my fist is the bass player's note, the bass drum, the feathering bass drum should be the plate that it sits on. Mm. Um, for me, that 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 helps me because I think that it's the bass drum in the feathering role is is about supporting the bass player it's not so much about playing with them even though you are obviously playing with them but it's more about supporting what they do i also try to be very very conscious of how my bass drum is tuned and how that's interacting with the bass player um, that's something like ron carter talks about all the time he talks about how a lot of times drummers will tune their bass drum to a pitch or a frequency or just in a way that it interferes with the range of the bass. So I try to be conscious and, and cognizant of that. And that, of course, changes with each venue that you're at. Hmm. So I find, you know, I don't have any muffling in my bass drum at all, but I use a small hand towel between the pedal and the head. The reason I do that is so I can adjust, you know, for whatever situation I'm in. Some situations I need to muffle the drum more than others for that very reason. I don't want to get in the way of, of the bass at all. So how do you tune that sucker? The bass drum, I, I think as far as most jazz drummers today, I probably tune maybe slightly lower than a lot of them. Uh, I love the sound of a bass drum tuned really high. In certain situations, it can sound great in jazz. Um, but I think I tune a little a little lower. I don't tune to I don't tune any of my drums to an exact pitch. Uh, I just tune to my ear. Um, but as far as the bass drum goes, I tune I think I tune on the on the lower end. Uh, 
comparatively to to a lot of jazz drummers who play, you know, the smaller 18-inch bass drum size. I kind of tune a little bit on the lower end. And as I said, I don't really, I don't use any muffling in the drum, just that small uh, hand towel between the, the pedal and the, and the back head. When you have to make adjustments, do you focus on the front head, batter head, both? I mean, what? Both. It all depends. I mean, you know, each, as you know, each head sort of does something different to the sound of the drum. So, you know, like I, I, I start out like I do with the rest of the drums where I have uh, the bottom head or the non-batter side slightly tighter than the batter side in order to get sort of the most tone out of it. But again, depending on the room, depending on the stage, all of that will, will uh, you know, affect how I, I end up tuning it. Let's move up to kit. What about the floor tom? Where does that sit? And let's say both toms. You play a 12-14, right, most of the time? Mm -hmm. I, I, I sort of tune, again, I kind of tune right in the middle. I don't tune super high, a la Max Roach, and I don't tune super low, a la Mel Lewis, you know. Um, there's drummers attuned even low, lower than Mel. I, I, I think that drums for jazz music, since that's what I, I do, I think they can sound great in any range. Uh, I, I've, when I was younger, I tuned a bit higher, uh, a little bit, not, not again, not as high as someone like Max Roach, uh, but def I tuned higher than I do now. I would say I tuned, as far as you know, general sound, right in the middle. Um, I found that when I do that, the drums will almost always sound good in any situation, uh, acoustically speaking, um, and also artistically speaking. Uh, I found that you know if I'm playing stuff that's more traditional or stuff that's more experimental, if I tune right there in the middle, the drums can really sound good. I make slight adjustments once in a while. I might bring the floor tom up or down depending on the you know the acoustic environment I'm in. Do you like relative pitch the the two drums, or is each drum kind of tuned independently? They're tuned independently, but they end up they end up pretty similar, maybe a third apart, I think, hmm. somewhere in there, a third or a fourth somewhere in there apart. They kind of that's sort of where my ear ends up putting them. Again, I don't tune to an exact pitch. Do you have like a recorded sound that's kind of your benchmark for tom tuning that you kind of reference? Just in general, yeah. No, not really. There's 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 so much that I like, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. there, there's not like one sort of go-to for me. Um, like I said, I, I enjoy drummers who tune in all ranges, depending on you know if you, if they're tuned well, the drums can sound great, you know. So there's really not a recording that I go to as far as what I aim for, so to speak. All right, tell me about the snare drum tuning. Um, let's see. Again, I don't tune to an exact pitch, but I, I tune, I would say I tune mid to slightly higher than, than, than what some drummers uh, or a lot of drummers tune to. I don't, I don't like the snare drum to be super high, but I don't, I don't like it when it's tuned lower usually. Sort of mid to slightly upper uh, range as far as tuning goes. And I, and I, I keep the snares relatively tight, but not not too tight. I like, I like to, uh, I don't like the, uh, if the snares are too tight and you hit it, you, you feel that, that sort of tension. And I feel that I can't, you know, you can't get some of the nuance out of the drum. If the snares are slightly looser, you can, there's more color you can get out of the drum. So I, I certainly don't have the snares loose by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't have them super tight. It's funny talking about snare drum tuning. I, I rented 
my second kit to uh, the great Billy Hart uh, last weekend. He was in town. And when I got the drums back, I was really curious to see how he had tuned them, you know, and he tuned them beautifully. The bass drum was quite a bit higher than I tuned, but it, it was it sounded great. The tom-toms were basically how I had them. The snare drum was tuned really pretty high, and the snares were very tight, which was really interesting to me. Mm. Um, you know, I've listened to him for years, and he he definitely tunes his snare drum on the higher end. But I was kind of surprised at how how tight the snares were. You know, it was interesting. So I, I kind of keep mine not not nearly as tight. That is fascinating. I feel I feel like it's deceiving. Like the recorded sound that we hear on records often comes across a little bit lower than at least in my experience. That when you hear the drum live in the flesh, I've noticed that with like Roy Haynes. Last time I saw him, I was like, how does that snare drum not exploding? Like, what is, he, what is he doing? And the wires thing. Like, my question is, is that for sympathetic buzz? Like, are you? Is it, is it something where the toms just activate the snare and that drives you nuts? Because for me, I can't play a drum with the wires that tight. It really drives me nuts. It's really tough. Like I said, it's very difficult for me to get certain sounds and colors when the wires are that tight. But I'm glad you brought up uh, sympathetic buzz because I hate that. It drives me nuts. And what I usually end up doing is messing with the high tom and try to tune it out with that and not mess with the snare drum too much. Because, mm. uh, you, you know, the snare drum, you play that, at least I play it a lot more than I play the high tom. So I want that to be right where I want it. You know, so if I, you know, the sympathetic buzz thing, it's funny when I was younger, now that I think about it, it didn't bother me then. But man, in the last 10 years, it drives me nuts if I hit that Tom and it's just, you know, I can't stand that, you know. <laughs> so you wouldn't dig a Bill, Billy Higgins kind of sound. His, his snare is rattling like crazy. Well, you know, it, it's funny when I listen to him play that I'm not thinking about that at all. Because <laughs> he's so great. It's like, man, that it can buzz as long as he wants it to buzz. Doesn't bother me. It's so, you know, what he's given to the music is so powerful, you know. <laughs> Dig it, man. Tell me about your cymbal setup. Um, It's funny. My, my taste in cymbals has changed. Um, when I was in my 20s, all through my 20s, um, I, I, I liked sort of, as far as main ride cymbals go, I, I love that, that classic old K sound, which I still love. It's, it's amazing. Um, the cymbal I played all through my 20s was a 22-inch early American K that one of my mentors, uh, the great Ron Tucker, gave me. It's a cymbal he played um, in, the, in the 80s for a while. It's a great cymbal. Um, I played that, and then I played like an 18-inch A Zildjian, and then a, a set of like 70s new beat Zildjian hi-hats, 14-inch, nothing crazy. I played that all through my 20s. And the funny thing was for me, when I when I was around 30, I realized that I, I really love the sound of, of A Zildjian cymbals, uh, especially in the jazz world. And I realized after learning more and more over the years that while a lot of drummers in that genre in the 50s and 60s played old Ks, many of them played A's. And on a lot of classic records, those are actually A's that you're hearing and not Ks. And I really started to think about that. And I, I realized how much I love that sound. Drummers like Billy Higgins and, and Grady Tate, Mickey Roker, um, you know, drummers like that who are some of my favorites. They played cymbals that 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 were higher pitched, that were more A sounding, and I I started to experiment with playing cymbals like that, and I found I really really 
liked it. Matter of fact, I liked it better than playing more of the old K sound. And I found that it sort of, it just served me better. So um, I, I played through, you know, several different cymbals. And just a few years ago, I acquired from uh, our friend Paul Wells, who's, a, who's a definitely a cymbal, a cymbal uh, addict. <laughs> uh, he, he found a, an old, a 20-inch older A. Um, I can't remember where he bought it, but he, he, he was in town once and he said, uh, he said, man, I have, a, I have a symbol I think you might like. And he brought it over and I played it and I said, yeah, you're right. I like that symbol. And I ended up buying it from him. So I play that. Um, I also play a 20-inch a new Ovidus A Zildjian, which is really nice. Uh, I play a set of, um, of older A's. I think they're from, I think, I'm not sure when from I think they're maybe from the late 60s or early 70s uh, and then on the far right uh, I switch between I have another older a that's 20 inches that I got at Maxwell's about eight seven eight years ago it's kind of a strange little symbol but I like it uh, I switch between that on the far right and then I, I when the great Joe Harris passed away I acquired um, his 20 inch uh, Peisty 602 flat ride from I think it's from the the 70s, maybe the early, early 70s. I don't know the history of those symbols very well at all, but it's a nice flat ride. And that's another thing that sort of changed for me was years ago, I never would have played a flat ride, but I, I play it quite a bit now. It's a nice symbol. And I found that it works really, really well for a lot of things. So that's kind of generally what I play. It's, it's pretty simple, but uh, it, it seems to work for me. So what makes you put up the flat versus the, the older 20? I use the flat ride uh, in settings that are a little quieter. For instance, in uh, in a guitar trio or playing behind a vocalist, uh, it, it flat rides generally work better in softer situations. Not always, but but generally. So I'll use it in those. I use the uh, uh, the twenty inch, the other twenty inch older A for stuff that's you know slightly larger group stuff that's a little more hard hitting per se. I didn't even uh, ask you what your drums are. They're Yamaha, right? Yeah, I have two Yamaha kits. Uh, I have, um, I, I guess, what would be an original Yamaha uh, Maple Custom 12, 14, and 18 natural finish that I acquired from uh, drummer Jimmy McBride, uh, who had them after my friend Aaron Kimmel. <laughs> it, the, the drums have made their rounds. Uh, but I'm honored to have, uh, have that kit. It's a beautiful set. It sounds great. That's the one I usually take out on gigs. And then I have um, a Yamaha uh, Maple Custom Absolute from, I think, the early 2000s. Um, it's like a cherry red finish. Uh, 10, 12, 14, and 18. I, I, ne I almost never use the 10-inch Tom. And then I also have a matching 14 by 20-inch bass drum for that kit that I use for, like, big band gigs. Mm. So those those are the two kits that I have. They're they're great drums. Uh, the snare drums I have uh, I have a six and a half by fourteen inch uh, original Maple Custom. That's the one I use almost always. And then I have a five and a half original Maple Custom that I use once in a while. That's the snare drum that uh, the great Jabali played <laughs> uh, last weekend. So nice. That's nice. what I have. They're they're great drums. I'm I'm honored to have them. Drum heads, coated ambassadors, all the way around. Coded ambassadors all the way around. On the bottoms, I will either use coded ambassadors or maybe clear ambassadors, uh, depending. But yeah, just just regular coded ambassadors. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know. <laughs> right, right. Now, 
do you are you one who just keeps the heads on there until they have to be replaced, or are you more of a once a year, six month replace? That de- well, it depends on the drum. For the bass drum and the tom toms, I'll leave the heads on for a while. You know, the the good thing about Coded Ambassador is that they they have a good long life to them. Um, so on the tom toms and the bass drum, I, I don't I don't change them nearly as much. The snare drum I change a fair amount only because I I practice and play brushes a lot, and you know it gets to the point where the coding is is sort of it's not doing what you need it to do so much. So I definitely change the snare drum heads a lot more than the other ones. <laughs> How often do you burn through sticks? I was just talking about sticks today, and I don't think I've changed my sticks in three months. <laughs> You know what? I I don't go through sticks quite quite as quickly as other drummers. Um, although I'm very sensitive to, I think all of us are, but I think especially those of us that play jazz or you know improvised type music, I'm I'm so sensitive to how they sound on the cymbals. Um, but I I I don't go through them as fast as as one might think. I do go through brushes pretty quick, um, mm. which uh, is not good for my wallet. But you know. Can't can't do much about that. <laughs> we talked about that before. I think I have the same pair of brushes from high school. What makes you what makes you change a pair of brushes? Well, for me, you know, brushes have a life to them. Uh, I, what I notice is that after a while, they lose the their response changes for me. Now, obviously, brushes have almost no rebound like sticks, but they definitely have a feel when you play them. And I noticed that after a while, they lose sort of their snap and just the 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 feel that that I feel when I play them. Um, so it, it kind of depends on how 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 much I'm using a certain pair, but I'll go through them and you know you know if I'm using them a lot, I'll probably go through them in a good seven eight months, you know, maybe even a little less depending on if I'm really playing and playing them a lot you know but that's you know that's just me some some drummers aren't quite that sensitive to them <laughs> I must be in the ladder because I can't tell <laughs> oh that's all right everybody got their thing you know as long as as long as the wires are are cool, they're not all messed up, that's okay, you know. <laughs> It's always funny when you go to a jam session and you sit in and you go to play the brushes and they look like they look like uh, Christopher Lloyd's hair in Back to the Future. Yeah. You know, it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know? <laughs> yeah, I have a, pe- a pair. It must be from the '60s that were from uh, an old mentor of mine. They look like yeah, like a like a pipe brush. <laughs> like they're completely <laughs> out of control. <laughs> yeah, don't get that way. <laughs> Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. All right. Well, thank you for humoring me with all the gear talk. Now let's um, sure let's talk about some music. So I didn't want to miss this opportunity to pick your brain about some of the legendary and maybe lesser-known drummers that have come out of Pittsburgh. Um, sure. I just did some basic research i'm sure you can fill in a bunch more names but who would you pick to be like the first kind of key mark you know pittsburgh drummer 
That's a good question. I, if I had to pick one, uh, it would probably be a drummer who most folks haven't heard of because he was, I'm, I'm not even sure he ever really made an official commercial recording. His name was James Honeyboy Minor, um, who was very well known around these parts. Um, he was quite a drummer from what I've heard from all, the, all of the older guys. And he was kind of, um, he was one of the first drummers who played jazz in Pittsburgh who the other drummers sort of looked up to, if you, if you, if you want to think of it like that. One of my mentors, the great Joe Harris, always told me that Honey Boy Minor was, was, was a great drummer. He had an incredible bass drum foot and he could play with a lot of different ensembles and he was just a really great player. So he, he would probably be the first that I would mention as far as the Pittsburgh legacy goes. And right after him, I think it would probably be Kenny Clark um, because they were, they were kind of contemporaries of, of one another. Mm. And then you move into uh, Joe Harris and then from Joe, you know, people like Roger and so on and so forth. But I, I would say, I would say Honey Boy Minor is probably the first uh, drummer around here of, of any real, you know, mastery as far as jazz goes. Mm-hmm. I'm strictly talking about about that. And if and if people are interested in in sort of learning about him, if you go to the uh, the Carnegie Museum, if you go to the Teeny Harris photo collection, which you can view online, there's a lot of great pictures that that have Honey Boy Minor uh, in them. And he's usually he's usually you know, named as being in the in the picture. So, would this have been the swing era or the, mm-hmm. the early bebop era? Both kind of that it, transitional. It, it, it def- I mean, Honey Boy Minor was he was a swing era musician, um, and Joe Harris and Kenny Clark, even though they are you know bebop pioneers, they really come out of the swing era. That's something that I think a lot of people sort of miss when they talk about the history of of the drums and jazz is that Max Roach, Kenny Clark, Joe Harris. All of those drummers that are usually talked about as being just, you know, beboppers, they were all that, of course, but they are they were children of the swing era, as Kenny Washington would say. And he's right about that. They came up listening to that music and they, you know, Kluke, Joe Harris, I mean, those guys were and even Max, they were very good swing era drummers. I mean, there there are recordings. Roy Haynes too. I mean, he started out playing with Lewis Russell's orchestra in the early forties when he was a teenager. Those guys are are swing era players at at first. And then they went on to do all all of the other amazing things that they did. Tell me a little bit about Kenny Clark's sound. Maybe some maybe one or two records that people who aren't familiar with him should check out. And like what's your like, why do you dig him? I know he's one of your big, big influences. So let's dig a bit into Kenny Clark. <laughs> All right, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he was really amazing. He, as far as his place historically, it's funny again, because you know you read a lot of history books and, and whatnot, and they'll tell you that Kenny Clark was the first one to move the timekeeping from the hi-hat to the ride symbol, and that's actually not true. There were a few other drummers that did that before him, most notably Papa Joe Jones. If you listen to, for instance, um, the Count Basie recording, I think it's from 1939 of Lester Young's tune called Tickle Toe. That's one of the best examples of Papa Joe. He starts the tune out playing on the hi-hat, and when Lester Young stands up to take his great solo, he moves to the ride cymbal. You can hear the hi-hat on two and four, you know, and that's 1939. Uh, so that, that gives you an idea of how much before the mid-40s that was happening. So Kluke sort of took that idea 
And he's the sort of the first one to create the language between the snare drum and the bass drum. Papa Joe and Big Sid Catlett did that a little bit, but Kluke was the first one to sort of take the idea of comping and turning that into something that was now uh, a prerequisite for all drummers to be able to do, to be able to keep time, but also interject this creative commentary with the other members of the band using the snare drum and the bass drum. And then Max took that and just totally blew the doors wide open and created this language that pretty much all of us use. So that's sort of Kluke's place in the history of the music. His sound was, was fantastic. He got such a great snare drum sound, and that was because, like all drummers back then, you had to be rudimentally proficient. You had to play the instrument well. You had to have, you know, relatively good hand technique, and you had to be able to get a sound out of the instrument. It wasn't, it wasn't so much what you were playing, that was a part of it, obviously, but it was what kind of sound did you get? And that was true for all instruments back then. There's a great um, interview with saxophonist Charlie Rouse, who played with Monk for years, and he came up in the 40s, and he made the point explicitly. He said, if you didn't have a sound back then, nobody cared. Nobody cared what you were playing. What kind of sound did you get? And that extended to the drums, I think. Um, and Klute got a great sound, especially out of the snare drum, the hi-hat, and, of course, the ride cymbal, which is sort of one of his trademarks. Um, and I love him for that reason, but I love him because... He he was one of he was he was part of an exclu an exclusive club uh, uh, among drummers in that he had that magical thing that would give any band that he played with this sort of lift almost uh, his groove the, his his accompaniment the way he would play with people was so musical and supportive I mean that's why he's on so many records. Um, while he was a great soloist, he was a great accompanist. And that's something that all of us, you know, drummers, I mean, that's really what we are before we're anything else is we we're accompanists. We play with people, you know? Yeah. There, you know, there's a few drummers who will play solo drum set concerts, but for the most part, you're always playing with somebody and the bulk of your time on any given gig is spent playing with people. It's not spent soloing. So I, I could hear early on that he was really great at this. And I noticed that all the records I had with him had this beautiful quality of just this great feeling. And when you listen to him play time, you know, his cymbal beat, it's like the sun. It's just like this radiant, beautiful thing that just is, you know, helping to propel the music and inform the music. So that's one of the main reasons why... I liked him so much. Plus, he sounded great playing with a piano trio, playing with a big band, playing behind singers. You know, he could kind of do it all, and, and he sounded uh, great doing it. But I, I really got into the, the whole art of accompanying people. I, I love doing that. You know, I, I find it challenging and very rewarding to try to figure out how, to, how best to play behind, you know, a given soloist or singer or whoever, you know. I want to take a, a quick detour, just talk about that accompanying. Um, what's going through your head? Are you singing the melody at all times and then listening additionally? Are you listening to the piano for the harmonic movement? You know, or is it, when does the soloist get into your ear? You know, like that hierarchy. What, what's, how do you, how do you do that? Um, well, I, 
I think if you're playing with good musicians, even if you're even if you're playing in a group where there's not a chordal instrument, if you're playing with good musicians, I, I never find that I have to sing the melody to myself as the song is going along. The melody is implied through the bass player playing the you know the changes, hopefully. <laughs> uh, you know, and the and the various soloists who are hopefully playing the song, you know. So I don't I never find that I have to, you know, sing the melody while I'm playing with other folks. I, I try to sort of take everything in as it's coming. And if I'm playing, you know, at the beginning of the gig, I'll, I'll usually make sure that I'm playing. I, I, I always call it finding my spot in the mix. So I'm checking to make sure, can I hear everybody else? Can they hear me? You know, to make sure I'm not playing too loud or too soft. Then I'm, I'm thinking about the room I'm playing in. You know, how are the drums sounding in the room to me? How, how do I think they're getting across to the audience, which can be deceiving sometimes. Um, so that's kind of what I do first. And then I, I'm focused on the soloist. I'm focused on what they're doing. I try to follow them where they're going. And at the same time, I'm monitoring the bassist and, you know, the chordal instrument, piano or guitar, and I'm, and I'm listening to how the chordal instrument is comping, and I'm trying to integrate into that with the soloist. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking. There's so much going on. When, when someone asks you, pardon me, when someone asks you about that, it's amazing to me, like, what we all do when we're playing like that. There's so much going on. <laughs> Which might explain why you're exhausted after a lot of gigs, <laughs> because you're doing a lot, you know. In in addition to you know all this physical movement, there's so much. It's such a mental game. All right, give me um, a handful. Let's say a couple Kluke records that everyone should go check out. Well, one of the there's so many, of course, but one of the best is uh, the record he made for Savoy in the '50s. He made a lot of classic records for the Savoy label. Um, and one of the ones he made as a leader, uh, right before he moved to Europe in the summer of 1956, is a record called Kenny Clark Meets the Detroit Jasmine, which features uh, musicians who were from Detroit, Pepper Adams, Kenny Burrell, Tommy Flanagan, and Paul Chambers, who was actually born in Pittsburgh, but he, he was raised in, in Detroit. That's a classic Kluke recording all the way around. You kind of get to hear him. Uh, you get to hear him play some beautiful solos, and of course, his his time keep keeping both with sticks and brushes is is really really beautiful. Um, the other thing to to note about that record and, and the rest of those records he made in the fifties, especially at Rudy Van Gelder's uh, studio in Hackensack, was that he used a very very minimal setup: snare drum, bass drum, hi hat, and one cymbal. That's all he used, and the amount of music that he gets out of that minimal setup is is inspiring to say the least so that's definitely one of them another record that i would recommend that's totally different than that uh when he moved kluke moved as i said to europe in 1956 and around 1960 he teamed up with the uh, belgian pianist uh, francie bolon and they formed a big band together called the clark bolon big band and it was sort of an international uh uh you know um group of musicians from all over Europe and then some expatriate American musicians who had moved to Europe like Benny Bailey and Johnny Griffin eventually. Uh, but they, they made several records and one of them is called Jazz is Universal um, on the Atlantic label. There's several others, but that's, that's one that's really, really great. You get to hear him play 
uh, with a big band in good fidelity, and he he just sounds great. I mean, he's totally taken care of business as a big band drummer, but his personality is is of course all up in the in the music, and uh, it's just a great band. There's several others that he made with that that big band as well, uh, but those are two that I would recommend for you know folks who are trying to get to know Kluke a little bit. I think we talked about this before. His he was using sonar drums, right? A deep sonar snare drum. Yeah, yeah. I think it was either a six or a six and a half by fourteen inch snare drum, which was a big part of his his sound. It was just a beautiful big snare drum sound. Uh, so yeah, yeah. He used sonar for many years, and then he I think he played Premier drums for a while when he got to Europe. I think isn't that an English company, Premier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think he used sonar and Premier uh, as well. Um, and I think I think Steve Maxwell had one of his his kits. I think it might have been one of the premier kits for a while. I can't I can't remember. I seem to remember seeing it there once when I was there a number of years ago. Mm. Yes, when we're listening, you want to get that sound, find a vintage old sonar snare drum. There we go. <laughs> Good luck. You know what you can't find because I've been looking for is a six and a half by fourteen Yamaha Maple Custom. <laughs> they are non-existent. <laughs> I know they're tough to find. I, I'm 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 grateful that I found one a number of years ago. You know. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's jump to another uh, Pittsburgh drum. Let's talk about Joe Harris. I had I had Blakey next on the list, but I think I think Blakey's well documented. So let's talk about Joe Harris. I don't know much about his playing at all. Yeah, he. Oh man, <laughs> Joe, Joe was a very very unique character. He, he was an incredible musician. Um, I guess I should start by saying that, you know, he was much more than just a great drum set player. He was actually like a full percussionist. He played mallets. Um, he played hand percussion. Um, he was really a, a, a true multi-percussionist. Um, and he was born in 1926, uh, December of 1926 here in Pittsburgh, and he grew up on the north side. And he studied with sort of a uh, a well-known drum teacher named Bill Hammond, who owned a drum shop downtown in Pittsburgh, uh, which I've heard a lot about. Um, and Joe, from what Joe told me, he um, he started studying with Mr. Hammond, and then he started kind of working at this drum shop when he was a kid. He would sort of run errands and whatnot. And that's sort of how he came to, to the drums. And he, he was very, very good. He played he was a very good, you know, proficient, you know, he had really great hands. Uh, you know, I used to love to watch him play some of Charlie Wilcoxon's snare drum solos, which he practiced religiously and made sure that, 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 that you practice too. Um, it was, it was wonderful to just hear him play something like that on a practice pad. Cause he had just beautiful hands. He had great, and he got a great sound out of the instrument. He had a great cymbal beat. Um, and you know, like Kenny Clark, he he was he was a man for all seasons. You know, he played. He was part of of the bebop innovations of the 1940s. I believe he moved to New York in a, in the I think it was 1946, and he sort of immediately fell in with, you know, all of the cats. You know, Ray Brown was a recent transplant to New York, and so he had some Pittsburgh, um, you know, homeboy you know, stuff happening in New York. So, you know, he sort of immediately fell in with Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Ray Brown, Hank Jones, Milt Jackson, James Moody, all of these new pioneers. He kind of just, you know, fit right in with those guys off the bat. And I, it's funny, I remember asking him, um, you know, when he moved to New York, did he, did he, was he practicing a lot? 
And he said, no, man. He said, I didn't have time to practice. He said, you know, we were all playing so much. He said, you would go home and, you know, catch a few hours of sleep and then you were back out, you know, playing at a jam session or playing a gig. He said, I basically worked stuff out on the bandstand while I was playing, which I thought was really amazing and fascinating. Uh, but it's it makes sense. There was so much going on back then. So he was he was part of all those innovations. And he was, you know, when Kenny Clark left Dizzy Gillespie's first big band, Joe Harris was the guy that Dizzy called. Um, and then in the 50s, Joe Harris became the house drummer at the Apollo Theater, which meant that he played behind all manner of, of acts with all kind of different groups. He was an incredible reader. He could sight read anything. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he got a gig like that. And then uh, in the... Um, in the latest 1950s, earliest 1960s, he re relocated over in Europe, and he lived in Sweden and then in Berlin, Germany. He played with the Berlin Radio Orchestra over there. There again, a gig where he was playing a lot of different kind of music and reading and doing all, all, of, all of manner of those things. And then he came back to Pittsburgh in the early 70s, and he lived over on the north side on Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and he taught for a little while at the University of Pittsburgh, and he played around Pittsburgh quite a bit in the 70s and 80s. And then when I came to know him in the early mid-90s, he was still playing a little bit and sounding amazing. Matter of fact, the last gig he did was for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. Man, I think it was probably a year and a half or so before he died, and he sounded just magnificent. I'll never forget that. You know, He was in his 80s, and he just... His, everything was there. It was really something. So he's on some great records, although he's not documented nearly as much as he, he should be. He certainly is on some, some good recordings. So that's about as brief as I can be. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned working stuff out on the gig. Do you do any of that? Is that allowed these days? I, I, I think we, I mean, I, I certainly do. I mean, I don't work out major things, you know, but, but, but little things, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've always been the kind of drummer that when I go to practice, I, I try to think about the recent gigs that I've done and what was hard, what gave me trouble, you know. And sometimes, matter of fact, a lot of time, it's very small things. It's a certain groove at a certain tempo where other tempos with that same groove, I'm fine. But at a certain tempo, it was really kicking my butt. Uh, stuff like that. So I, I try to work on things that I, I've noticed recently are giving me issues when I'm playing, um, and yeah, you know, I think I think I work out little things on 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 the bandstand. I try not to work out major things because that can be disastrous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like um, that's a good point. Like practicing for the gig versus just practicing for proficiency. Like to get to that stage, I think. I think many of us get stuck in like, oh, I got to learn a new book. You know, let me let yeah. me get that let me get that new thing together that may or may not ever be part of my career. <laughs> do yeah. you do any of that, like practicing for practicing's sake at this point? Yeah, I mean, for me, especially now, I mean, there's sort of two types of practicing. There's maintenance practicing, uh, and then there's developmental practicing. And you know, because I'm so busy, there's a lot of days where I can't get to the second kind. I can only do the the maintenance stuff, which is you know working on a, on a on a practice pad and then getting on the drums and just working on fundamental type stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I I do do practicing for that. But I find that it's more beneficial to me because I'm playing so much that I, I address things that have literally given me problems on a gig. 
um, because I don't want to have those problems anymore, <laughs> you know. So I, I find that, that that usually is is sort of how I approach it when it's not, um, you know, just working on general fundamental maintenance type stuff. Let's shift over to, um, at least in our lifetime, probably the the most influential Pittsburgh drummer that is Roger Humphreys. Um, so let's talk a bit about Roger. Interesting that, did he ever leave Pittsburgh or was it a brief time out? Because he's been there for a while and it's like an institution of Roger Humphreys, right? I mean, I'm coming from yeah. the outside looking in, but it certainly feels that way. Yeah, it, it, it's certainly that way. Um, and he did leave for a while in the 60s when he was playing with uh, the great Horace Silver. He did live in New York for a time, but not, not very long. He, um, after he left Horace um, in 1966, uh, roughly early 67, um, he came back to Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, he, he lived here and he was on the scene. And then he joined, in 68, he joined Ray Charles' big band for a while. And then he came back after that, and he's basically been been here ever since. He he's gone out and played, you know, on the road a little bit with certain people. He, I think he did a tour of Europe with Groove Holmes uh, in the '70s and some other little things like that. But he's basically been right here in Pittsburgh uh, since then, leading his own band and teaching and being a, an amazing inspiration to all of us. You know. So when did you um, connect with him? I connected with him. I met him when I was uh, 15, um, and I, that's, that's when I was just starting to get out and sit in at jam sessions and meet older musicians and uh, get it, really getting into the, the music. And I, my dad used to take me around to different spots, and I remember hearing him play and just, you know, I knew about him, of course, and I, I think I had heard song from my father at that point, I think. So I knew I knew he was a great drummer, and I was kind of familiar. But seeing him live was just—it was incredible, you know. I'd seen a, a couple of other good local uh, Pittsburgh drummers before that who I, I liked and admired, but that was just kind of like, oh, okay, you have to be that good, okay, you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I met him when I was about fifteen, and um, he. You know, he, he, he's just, he's such a beautiful person and he's so encouraging. If you go to him and you have any kind of sincerity and, and want to learn, he's, he's there for you, you know? Uh, so I met him when I was about 15 or so, and, uh, I started going to the, the, uh, creative and performing arts high school not too long after that. And I studied with him there and been studying with him ever since. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a lesson with Roger Humphreys? like oh it's wonderful it's uh it's he he's very much he teaches in very much the same way that many uh master african teachers teach it's uh there it's not about working on exercise three and four he he talks to you about i mean you know he will use certain books to teach especially drummers who are are more in the beginning stage but he talks about the relationship to the music all the time and how the drums and how you should relate to the music. Uh, you know, he, he's always been, uh, and, and it's, you can hear it in his playing. He's such a great musician. We talked about accompanying uh, people before, and Roger is a master accompanist. I've seen him play with so many different people, 
And I learned, I learned so much from him, you know, watching him deal with different situations over the years, the way he responds and the way he approaches a musical situation. He's a master accompanist, uh, in addition to being a, a great soloist and band leader. Uh, you know, studying with him, he, he would talk a lot about that, and he would talk about connecting your ideas when you play. Uh, he, he, he caught, he always called it getting your thoughts together, <laughs> you know, which is kind of true. Um, and that's something that he does remarkably well as far as being a soloist and, and an accompanist as well. But when you hear him solo, there's just this incredible thread and, and you can really hear him playing the chord changes a lot. You know, you can tell that he knows the music and he's playing from that perspective. It's not just a bunch of cool ideas that he comes up with. Everything relates to what the song he's playing and he ca he can capture the mood of a song when he solos and, and just extend that you know a lot of times if you listen to a drummer who doesn't have that ability when it gets time for them to improvise a lot of times it's this hard left turn and it just goes somewhere and you're just it's just sort of like what are they doing you know whereas roger has that incredible instinctive ability to take whatever mood has been created during the course of the song and then just extend that and just keep moving in that direction musically he's so great at that uh, so studying with him was there was a lot of uh, you know philosophical <laughs> you know type type stuff and you know he would say certain things to you that at the time you might not totally understand but six months two years you go like oh that's what he was talking about <laughs> <laughs> is there um is there any like trademark drum things that you hear him do that you might have picked up absolutely yeah he there's certain things that he does it's a little difficult to describe uh, without without being at a drum set, but he he does a lot of very very beautiful slick stuff between the ride cymbal and the snare drum, where he'll he'll sort of play these different rhythms that where he's at once playing the time, but he's also playing against it at the same time, and it's just the, the most beautiful. I mean, you know, he looks like a, a ballerina almost when he does it. It's just this, these beautiful relaxed uh, movements. That's one thing that he does. Um, the other thing he does is he'll play a lot of cadences um, that are kind of like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. He'll do a lot of things that are sort of around that. Um, and he just has he has he has such great musical phrasing and his phrasing is clear. That's something that I picked up from him. I, I aim to play with that sort of melodic clarity that he plays with. Um, I my my ear goes to that. That's why I love drummers like Max Roach and Philly Joe and, and Kluke and, you know, drummers who play. I play very linearly when I play. Um, that's just kind of how I've always heard it. You know, other drummers play more abstract, which is also very beautiful, but it's just a different, a different way. And I think Roger was a main, is one of the main reasons why I play that way is because it just, my ear just gravitated to that, that sound. And I love the challenge of trying to play melodically uh, in different ways. Uh, so I, I definitely picked those things up from him. And I just, I, I aspire to be the musician that he is. I want to be able to, you know, lift any musical situation up in a good way, you know, and, and he always does that. Uh, so I, I've picked all that up from him. But I have to say, you know, in the, this is off the, slightly off the topic of drumming, but 
you know, in the last few years of my life, I've had several people ask me, what's the, the biggest thing that you learned from him? And after I thought about it, I realized that the biggest thing I really got from Roger doesn't have much to do with playing drums. I think the biggest thing I got from him was investment in your community. Um, because that's what he's done. You know, he, it would have been very easy for him to move to New York or Europe and have a great career in any of those places. But he decided to stay here because of his family. You know, Roger's a, a very, very family-oriented man, and he's got children and grandchildren, and those people mean the world to him, and that's why he stayed here. And I've seen all the different things that he's done over the close to 30 years now that I've known him, and he's always trying to do something that is lifting the, the, the jazz community and, and his community over on the north side up all the time. And I've, I realize just how important that is. And so that's probably the biggest way that he's influenced me, you know, along with, of course, playing drums. But uh, I, I take that very seriously, and I think it's important. And I, I think if you're not doing anything to help, then you're part of the problem, <laughs> you know. And I'm trying to help. I don't want to be part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think anyone who, who's a fan of jazz music will know the Harsh Silver record song from my father. If you don't, I would say that's an absolute classic record, top to bottom. Roger was a teenager, I believe, when they when they made that, or, or he was a young 20. adult, twenty, which is unbelievable. Um, give me a couple other records that we should all go check out. Uh check out. Uh the trumpet player who was in Horace's quintet when Roger joined in 1964 was uh, great, uh, the great Carmel Jones. And Carmel Jones recorded an album on Prestige called Jayhawk Talk. Uh, and Roger is on that record. It's a great band. Jimmy Heath is on there. Uh, the great, late, great Barry Harris and George Tucker plays bass. He sounds great on that record. Jayhawk Talk, that's a great one. Um, unfortunately, Roger is not anywhere near documented as much as he should be. Another record that's more recent, this is from 1995, there's a wonderful uh, jazz pianist and organist from Pittsburgh named Bill Hyde, who uh, lived in Detroit and Chicago. He now lives in DC, but back in the mid nineties, he came back to Pittsburgh and made a great piano trio record uh, that's called Air Mobile, uh, which features Bill on piano and the great Dwayne Dolphin on bass and Roger on drums. Roger and Dwayne have a, a wonderful uh, hookup and connection. They're a really great rhythm section. It's it's just a beautiful piano trio album. It also features, I believe, the great uh, Kunga player George Jones is on it as well. But Roger sounds just fantastic on that. So those are two that are really, really great to check out. You can really get a sense of uh, uh, of Roger on both of those records. All right, I got to wrap it up with one more gear question. It's sure. been the theme for the show. That's all right. It's coming in and out. It was the first like 20 episodes and I went away from it. <laughs> what was your first snare drum? Oh, man. Um, my first snare drum was part of the first kit that I actually got. Before that, I just I had a remote tunable practice pad. But when I was 13, my parents bought me uh, my first drum set. And it was a... Uh, are you familiar? I think it was sort of like a student... It was like a student brand of some company. It was called Royce. Oh, yes. Yes. I had a blue Royce kit. I think it was 12, 16, 20 with a, I think it was a either a five or a five and a half by 14 inch snare drum. They were, they were blue. 
And uh, yeah, that was yeah, that was my first snare drum. <laughs> <laughs> did you love it or did you hate it? I hated my first snare drum. It was so janky. Mine was my, mine was pretty terrible. By the way, great use of the word janky. Um, <laughs> my, mine was pretty janky too, but I didn't know anything else. It wasn't until I played a really good snare drum that I was like, oh, that's how they're supposed to sound. Oh, man, I got to get a new snare drum. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew that my snare drum didn't sound like Max Roach's or R. Blakey's or Kenny Clark's, but I just, I, I knew that that was, that, that was because of me. It wasn't because of the drum. <laughs> you knew that as a 13-year-old. It's all in the hands, I, I, right? I did. I thought, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's them. That's not the drum. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you hanging for the hour. Anyone listening who's coming through Pittsburgh, you probably catch Tom playing somewhere around town. There's two great jazz clubs here called Alma, which are fantastic. And then there's Kingfly Spirits or some other venues. So um, come through town, check it out. Roger's still active. I mean, you can catch Dave Sockmorton, who we'll talk to later. So yeah, it's a really cool scene here that I think is underrepresented. So there's a lot of great drummers here. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing how many really good drummers are here. You know, there there really are a lot of them. So there's there's always always something to check out. Right on. Well, thanks, Tom. Thank you, man. It's an honor. Appreciate it. That is it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Tom. We barely scratched the surface on the things I wanted to talk about, so I'm definitely going to be bringing him back into the show in various ways since we literally live less than a mile from one another. So be on the lookout for some content with Tom and I and a few other Pittsburgh artists. Until next time, have a good one and see you then.